0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Triassic Park, where today we're talking about Jaws 2. At first glance, Jaws 2 may seem like your average, run-of-the-mill Hollywood sequel. However, that's when it's looked at through a modern lens. See, Jaws 2 is an incredibly important moment in creating the cinematic landscape as we now see it. Jaws is widely considered the first true summer blockbuster. It changed the Hollywood releasing system, and as such, Jaws 2 is the first true Hollywood blockbuster sequel. More to the point, it is the first sequel to use the number two in its title. Prior films, like The Godfather Part 2, use Roman numerals to try and class to join up. Jaws 2 has no such aspersions. At least not in its current form. Jaws 2 went through a truly hectic and harrowing production process. Filming for Jaws 2 started with an entirely different director, John Hancock. Hancock wanted to make a much darker and more harrowing film. Hancock was brought in when Howard Sackler wrote the first draft of the screenplay and recommended his inclusion. Sackler did last-minute touch-ups on the original Jaws script and was brought in after Carl Gottlieb from the original film declined to return for his writing responsibilities. Sackler wrote a much darker script, a decrepit amity that was on its last legs. Sackler brought in the mafia ties from the first novel and other elements that hadn't been included in the original film. With Hancock on the project, his wife, Dorothy Tristane, did an extensive rewrite on Sackler's version. This new hybrid version had quite a few things in common, but there was a very different script overall. All taking place on Catalina, Hancock was taking multiple takes and had very specific vision for how the film would look. Everything had to be darker, shops had to be closed, and streets empty. The reason for Hancock's firing is not exactly clear, but there are a plethora of theories. From producer disputes to poorly looking dailies to claims of studio wasting money, whatever the actual cause, the firing happened before the production moved to Florida for the remainder of the shoot. Without any notice or a chance to defend himself, the studio packed his bags and drove him to the airport telling him to take a hike after the firing of the hancock production the whole thing was brought to a standstill while they tried to plan their next course of action they reached out to spielberg who had initially turned down the project spielberg agreed to return only if they gave him 1 million dollars up front and 10 percent of the gross his request also included another lengthy delay and the studio just couldn't abide Joe Alves, production designer and editor Verna Fields, were considered to take the helm, however, due to a recent spat between Clint Eastwood and Philip Kaufman during the production of Outlaw Josie Wales, in which the actor sacked Kaufman to direct the film himself, the spat resulted in the Directors Guild creating new rules, and under these new rules, Alves and Fields could not be brought on after the firing of the original director. Things looked grim until Alves had an idea to bring in a director whom he had worked with in his days of night gallery by the name of Janat Swark. A director had finally been found and production could recommence. Swark replaced many of the original teens that Hancock had hired, with only a few actors surviving the transition. Carl Gottlieb agreed to help out finally after a considerable pay increase and reworked the script for a third time. Only a small amount of footage from the Hancock version survives in the film today. Finally, production began in Florida. All good, right? Well, no, not even close. Production issues were abound. Multiple injuries occurred on set, including a back injury, a torn knee, a crew member's girlfriend committed suicide, and there was a nasty case of crabs running around the set. See, much like the first film, there was a lot of issues with the shark effects. Reportedly, they made the shark out of corrated steel, which got incredibly corroded. And furthermore, a hurricane showed up and damaged a huge portion of the effects. This led to a lot of downtime, and we you give young people a lot of downtime and nothing to do but practice sailing, you had a lot of partying. This led to the aforementioned case of crabs which the on-site paramedic said was an issue another huge issue was the film's star she roy scheider did not want any part of jaws 2 but he had been roped in due to owing the studio two more movies the only way that spielberg convinced the studio to take scheider as the lead in the original film was to get him to agree to a three-picture deal He had done the movie Sorcerer with Freakin, which was a huge disaster, and he left Deer Hunter after a big script change. To entice him to do the movie, they offered Jaws 2 to Scheider with the promise that this one movie would count as two on his contract and he would be free of Universal after doing the picture. He agreed, but he was not a happy camper. There are disputes towards just how much of a jerk he was on set, but it was clear at the very least that he despised director Sork. The two got in a brutal fight that in some reports featured the two men choking each other. After each and every scene break, Scheider would strip down and begin sunning himself. There are conflicting reports as to whether or not this actively affected his look on film, or if it was just a strange quirk. Regardless of how it affected the film, the obsessive sunning would eventually lead to Scheider's tragic death via skin cancer in 2008. Actor Murray Hamilton filmed the scenes in short succession as his wife was going through medical treatments and he demanded to be by her side. Hamilton's portrayal of Mayor Vaughn loses some of its depth in the final film, which has led to the presence as a mayor in Jaws 2 as a bit of a running joke online. In one of the deleted scenes, we see that Vaughn stands up for Brody, and this is really only seen in the TV versions of the film. The production had their summer months for the Florida shoots, but they had to go back to Catalina in the fall. The water was freezing and required anyone in the water to use wetsuits when possible to conserve heat. The star of the film, the shark, has some spectacular moments and begins to resemble a classic slasher villain by the end of the movie. As mentioned prior, the shark still had plenty of issues, but one of these issues led to an amazing sequence, albeit a very dangerous one. When the shark goes to eat the comatose mic, and he is thrown into the boat at the last possible minute, it is a much closer call than it was originally intended. The shark was coming in too close and too fast. The shark had also snapped a wire, which whizzed dangerously above the actors' heads. The fear on the actors' faces in that sequence is so believable because it's real. They were terrified. Another dangerous scene involved the sequence where Anne Dusenberry sits alone in the middle of the ocean as the shark attacks her and her boyfriend. In the filming of the scene, Anne felt unsafe due to there being water spouts on the horizon. Water spouts are essentially little water twisters. That are understandably very dangerous in order to get the shot and calm the actors down Alves admitted to feeding her brandy which seems to make a potentially dangerous situation even worse luckily the shot was got and no one was hurt when the shark was not working the kids had a full run of holiday in and a lot of close bonds were formed Jaws 2 is a film with some many different versions and ideas that an entire podcast could be made just of what didn't happen there was a pitch for a prequel involving the sinking of the indianapolis with a young quint there was a pitch by arthur c Clarke featuring a giant squid attacking an oil platform and of course the various iterations of the film during production the amazing book by john lemay titled jaws unmade the lost sequels prequels remakes and ripoffs understandingly and amazingly outlines what could have been And luckily there are things like the novelization and the Marvel comics adaptations that were based off of early scripts. So you can get a better idea of what the Hancock edition may have looked like. The Jaws 2 we got has a lot of great elements to it and a simple plot. An unraveling Sheriff Brody is obsessed with the idea that a shark is once again, circling the shores of Amity. Everyone is highly skeptical. And eventually, Brody's paranoia gets him fired. His son and his friends go off to sail with their friends, and the now disgraced father has to rescue them because the Great White is attacking them. All of my sources will be in the comments, as always, in the show notes, but an extra thank you must be put forward towards the extounding book, Jaws 2, The Making of the Hollywood Sequel by Louis Paisano and Michael A. Smith. Also a prior co-host and oftentimes guest of the pod, Jason Drury was our first ever research assistant as he tackled the book, Just When You Thought It Was Safe, A Jaws Companion, which you would have also heard about last episode when we tackled the original Jaws. So Adam, now that you know so much about a film that seems, on the surface, so simple. What do you think of Jaws?
1: Uh, don't work with teenagers. Um, <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, and I, I am kind of being honest, It's, it is a weird thing because it would be such a different movie to watch at the time when we're not so used to, like, very formulaic sequels in which you bring back the same monster and make it bigger and have it, you know do more exciting things but like it really does kind of set i guess the benchmark for that like sequel style that we're gonna see in later um films where you like even at the beginning they like have the shark mini explode from the beginning to be like look we're gonna do it bigger um (laughs) and you're like okay um yeah, I don't know how I feel about it as a, a film. Uh, I was telling someone that I was going to be on this podcast and they were like, oh, it's the second best Jaws film. And I was like, three and four are crazy. Two is kind of just a fairly okay movie that I would throw on maybe. I don't know. It, <laughs> the funniest thing about the movie is uh, the mayor is 100% correct. Like Everybody is right. And it's just that movie trope where because we know there's a shark and because our hero has to be our hero, um, everything he does eventually, like, in hindsight, is justified, quote unquote. But, like, the whole time I'm like, no, take this person off. Um, the Like, he is he's coated his bullets with poison and has fired in an open <laughs> beach, like at something um without like <laughs> any verification on it and like you know doesn't clear the beach first doesn't do anything just starts shooting and like everybody jokes about the first movie you can just stay out of the water like just stay on the beach and nobody can go in the water but like here they really have to like you know go to extreme la- but i mean i guess you know teens are, are never gonna listen to their parents but like they go to an extreme length to, like, come up with the contrivances for why everybody keeps ending up in the water.
0: Right. I mean, well, I guess, but again, uh, th- no one know like, nobody really knows that a shark is supposed to be on the water. Like, uh, I guess the Brody Boys, they, like, saw their father kind of go nuts and just shoot at a bunch of fish. But, um, you know, you would be like, yeah, okay, dad's just completely losing it. I do I do like because I I do think there's a little bit more to Mayor Vaughn in this one than the original cuz like the original he's like a very clear cut like Oh yeah, this capitalist—he doesn't care about people's lives. It just, you know, he doesn't care what happens as long as he gets his bottom line. Here, he's like, uh, you know, Murray Hamilton is clearly playing him a little bit more. Like, look, I, I want to actually make sure there's not a shark here. Like, I just think you're jumping to conclusions way too fast. Like, he seems like a much more reasonable character in this movie, where he's just, he's just like sitting back and going, like, okay, like guys, like let's calm down and let's sit down and let's look at this photo. And figure out, is this a shark? Is this not a shark? And I, I, I do love that, that sequence because it's it, it really is just like a bad photo, right? Like they, they go through that length of, you know, of showing the photo be developed, which is something that uh, I think is lost in modern films just because we have this modern technology. Uh, that used to be a really good way to uh, build suspense up and to really get a surprise reveal, is the old, uh, you know, developing a photo trick uh you only see his reaction in 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 this movie and it's not really the be-all end-all that he thinks it is which is kind of fun because it almost plays on that trope that was happening a lot in cinema in that time um i for what this is going to sound weird but i swear to god this is where my brain first goes to photolapse there's a great scene in the movie blackula where a character is uh, developing a photo and then uh, vampires show up and some shenanigans happens. But I feel like this movie almost is making fun of that trope by, by featuring that scene. <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, and I think it's an easy, like it's an easy thing to write into the script and it, it builds that tension in a way that um, you know, the audience all know there's a shark. We've seen the shark. Um, we came to Jaws too. Uh, and weirdly enough, this movie reminded me kind of most of like Psycho Three.
0: Oh, we- really? I I have never I have never been able to make it through Psycho Three, and I've tried four times I think. Every time I put on Psycho Three, I stop because
1: I can't. I can't. Watch Psycho 3. Right. I, can't watch Psycho 3. I mean, it's just a little over the top. I'm thinking of Psycho Three. I might be thinking of Psycho Two is it the is it's the one where um like uh, Norman is being like re-traumatized by like everyone Oh.
0: Oh yeah, that's Psycho 2. That's Psycho 2. Psycho 2 is brilliant. I love Psycho 2. Uh, that's a
1: That's a pretty good comparison. That's a cuz like bro, like basically what you're getting is a character that has experienced trauma jumps to the same conclusions assumes everything like you know has this authority and so is and in the first movie like you know there's like some token like we need to shut down the beach this is important like we don't know what's going on and then it ramps up and you know you have that you know like those exchanges but like here he's just swinging right out of the gate like anything is a shark Um, it's, it's, it's interesting when you see like the scenes with his wife and how he like deals with that trauma and how he's like flipping about being fired and like, she sits down and it's like, well, what, you know, what's really going on? He's like, I've never been fired from anything. This is like, I'm always good at what I do. Um, and so it's kind of. You know, you could read it through the lens of, like, a military service person or a police officer or anybody that's dealt with, like, like RMTs. Like, anybody that has a really stressful, like, violent job is that he's just kind of internalized it and he's dealing with these, like, really stressing situations all the time. And it seems like all the kids on this island are also all the time finding bodies
0: oh yeah oh yeah can you imagine like the the uh the trauma alone of finding those charred burnt up bodies that he finds in the freaking water like i would lose my shit forever
1: just kind of walks in and like automatically finds a burned body (laughs) i'm like wait what (laughs) did he see something i didn't i i'm like anyway there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of that convenient filmmaking, but there's a lot of, like, little good stuff, like, you know, an explanation for why the kid's out there, because, like, obviously we need the like, to up the stakes from the first movie and be like, okay, well, now he's trying to protect, you know, people he cares about. Um, and, like, you know, the explanation that the kid's like, I want to come on the thing, which is, like, obvious, but at least it's, like something new and a different dynamic because this would be terrible if they just made another movie where three guys go on the ocean and fight another shark
0: right right i it's uh it's so much of that it's a very different movie right because i've heard people compare this to a slasher film uh which is actually a pretty apt comparison because again this is very early in the slasher boom though like there's the, the tropes of slashers have not really uh, you know been put into into place I mean this movie came out the same year as the first Halloween right so um it's a very different movie in that regard but it does have a lot in common where there is a scarred assailant like it goes up to the point where it's like a traumatic scarred looking uh shark in this one which i thought was a really amazing way to make him more menacing Uh, actually it's a her by the way in one of the scripts they make this be uh bruce's mate um and fans call it brucetta and that is a horrible fact that I had to just let out. Uh, but, anyways, the uh, the the uh, the kids being picked off one by one uh, in in a very slasher esque way, I thought was a, a very interesting way to take this movie. But it also has that level of artifice and artistic worth that uh, the original Jaws does, because there's these like amazing. Sh- weeping shots of the landscape the cinematography is amazing i love all the lighting i love just like looking out on the open ocean and then you have like john williams doing honestly like probably his most underrated score because i had no idea uh i mean i've seen this movie before but i've never really listened to this movie I'd really never really took an in, in. and taking it in fully you really uh, figure out just how much of this movie works because of John Williams like he is really pushing this movie forward and really making the scares happen and the tents happen and everything like that so he is pulling like extra levels like this is a slasher film that has music by John Williams like that's amazing right like that's amazing if you look at it from that perspective that's like it's unheard of um and i i do understand that there is some retreads right like it's not wholly new and wholly original um it, there is moments where they just kind of seem to bring characters in and just kind of like throw them away uh, i thought they could have maybe done more with like a female like you know bi- marine biologist because she comes in briefly and goes like gives her a display of the orca uh, which by the way this podcast was originally going to cover jaws 2 and orca because i thought that orca uh that the i heard in a video that the uh, that the jaws 2 uh jaws 2 came out after dino de laurentis's orca and that's why there's a dead orca on the beach because it's a fuck you to dino de laurentis's orca film because in that movie, the orca eats a great white shark as a fuck you to Jaws. Even though the old, it's a rip-off of Jaws. But anyways, um, it turns out that from uh, reading John LeMay's book that that is just a rumor and is not true because the orca death was in very early versions and are very
1: early drafts of the script that predate the movie Orca. So um, there you go. There's a fun fact for you. It might be like... You know, a commentary on the the Orca, the ship from the first... Like, it might be them commenting on like, well, this trauma is resurfacing and he's like remembering this horrific thing that's happened. And also, you know, you need like another big thing that could explain what it was. It was interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I will say in terms of like the slasher tropes, um, I don't think I liked any of the teenagers particularly um they had some scenes that were like you know meant to humanize i think some of them did a better job but i don't think they were given anything that we could like you know like there was not there was not a lot to grab onto like there was literally one character that like was very upset and they were like she's hysterical And then there was another character that was upset and they were like, oh, she's completely lost it. I'm like, okay, um, so this is a theme apparently. (laughs) Seth Rogen's like um, dad was there and he was yelling stuff and making the worst jokes ever. And um, (laughs) I don't know, like everybody looked like real teenagers. You had like incel dudes that have never had a date um, that were hanging out and then, By
0: the way, one, one of those is uh, one of those is Keith Gordon, who would then go into Christine, where he also plays an incel dude who can't get a date. Uh, now he's a director and seems like a lovely human being, so um, you know, he just got typecast in the eighties and the early late like, seventies.
1: Like it's a hard trope, but like it really it's just kind of a bummer now, and like we've seen it in so many things that you're like, Okay, we we get it. You are not talking to anybody and expecting to them to fawn on you and i don't like it added nothing for me um you know i thought that some of the like interactions were like at least believable dumb teens the water balloon fight and then like the guy that kept pumping up his boat and then it popped while he was making a dumb joke that no teenager would ever make but whatever and um yeah i don't know it was Like, yeah, they were fairly trope-heavy teenagers, but, like, again, this is pretty early on, so, like, you might not have the, like, this person's the blank person, this person, um, you know, is the final girl. Like, there isn't that. um, And, you know, I think the inclusion of a child, even though child actors can be often very difficult to work with, you know, at least... I, like up the stakes, right? That that chi- the child was actually one of the ones who got replaced when
0: the new director came in. Weirdly enough, like they replaced the kid, and you're like, it's he's just like a kid, like he's not like Lawrence Olivier. Like, why'd you replace this kid? Like, you clearly didn't watch any of his footage. You just went, oh, the other director had him, get him out, get this kid out of here, get this schmuck out of here. Uh, and that kid was uh, funny story. That kid, uh, in his contract, he had to go, he had to dye his hair black in it to be in the movie and then his contract is he had to go home with blonde hair again because he was like a spokesperson in a commercial um and they fucked up the dyeing
1: process so they sent the kid that they just fired home with green hair nice i mean i guess they didn't probably care back then because you could do a lot worse to people uh Yes. Yes, that is true. That is true. It this movie
0: is this movie's fascinating in the in the way that a like, I, I understand everything you're saying and I think because one character because I really like Brody's arc in this in that like he does kind of have to get over himself in a lot of scenes like there's that that scene specifically when he's like uh rescuing his son and his son is like oh dad dad oh, I fucked up dad oh forgive me forgive me Godfather! Uh, and then he's just like, oh, I. This is not like the problem right now. I'm glad you're safe and go be safe, right? Like, don't worry about it. And we gotta get going. And it's just um, that in the original script, there was a lot more. Like, there's still some good tension between Brody and the like uh, Ellen's new boss, uh, like the uh, the Len Peterson, I think his name is." Uh, which is a terrible name. No one should remember that name. Only somebody who's read three books with this character. Uh, but anyways, Len Peterson was originally supposed to be having an affair with Ellen, um, which is similar how in the original novel, um, Hooper is sleeping with Ellen and they have like a torrid affair. In the the novel, it is amazing because like you could not make it into a movie because in the novel, Brody is just the biggest fucking loser. And he, like, only, he survives pretty much, like, by accident. Like, he's, like, some overweight schlubby dude. And he just survives because the shark eats the other people first. Like
1: It's very uh, clearly a Moby Dick, like, one-to-one, kind of, in many ways. So, like, having him be the Ishmael and the... Yeah, but it has a better kill than any
0: Moby Dick movie, uh, or Moby Dick story. Uh, because, you know, when, when, when was the last time you saw Moby Dick uh, get electrocuted to death? And, and say
1: ah well Moby Dick doesn't die really so I guess that's the real problem is that Captain Ahab didn't have electricity <laughs>
0: so, so what we've proven in in this episode so far is that I have time to read two to three books about the movie Jaws 2
1: still haven't read Moby Dick it's a like it's a very overrated book it obviously like reflects its history at the time but like There is a lot of, like, cetacean, like, etymology and, like, uh, like biology. And you're like, I don't care. I'm not a whaler. I'm not studying marine biology. And if I was, all of this is wrong. (laughs) They literally thought sperm whales had their sperm in their head, like, back in the day. And that's why they're called sperm, like, like, sperm whales. And it's this material called spermaceti. What? Yeah, the Italian, like, whalers thought that sperm whales had their, like, you know, like, sperm up inside of their head. Later, some people theorized that, like, it was kind of this waxy substance. It's called spermaceti. And they thought that, like, it was used to sink sperm whales to, like, get really low so that they can um, eat squid. And now, more recently, they think it's just for, like, echo-locating and it just is a resonator that they bounce stuff off and i think this is interesting your podcast because dinosaurs a lot of the time they'll be like they'll come up with the coolest reason that something is the way it is and then later they'll be like oh no that's not it um i mentioned off air that like the pachycephalosaurus which is like the dinosaur you know for ramming heads um everybody's always like this dinosaur like rammed heads and it like was a ram and it like fought other dinosaurs and in reality all of the blood vessels were on top of its head so if it rammed anything it would die so like it's it's like bone head was kind of to protect its small brain and most of it was um like it was ornate so that other dinosaurs in the same family could recognize it like dinosaurs just kind of like pinged off the fact that they looked different. Like other birds do.
0: That's fair. That's fair. Speaking of birds, in the orca scene, those seagulls were taped to the orca prop because they couldn't get the seagulls to stay. Yep, there you go. Well, not taped. I think they were tied. It's a little hard to tape. <laughs> P- pretty noticeable on screen if they're just like gaffer tape. <laughs> taping all these seagulls. I don't know. they will tape the birds
1: to it. <laughs> look great
0: (laughs) oh gosh oh gosh they apparently like during uh so did you so what do you think of the original jaws i guess we probably should have got that off off the start like are you a big jaws
1: maniac i mean like it would it like it definitely would be like in a top 10 like you know of the like progenitor like if you go from like monster like classic universal monsters and then there's jaws like it is one of my favorites because like even though the like three person character interactions are a little like hey we're three guys and we're on a boat and we're drunk and we <laughs> like won't have any female characters ever but like i think <laughs> like everything in that film it like great tension fantastic opening one of the best like scenes of all time and just like i had forgotten so i re-watched jaws for this before i watched jaws 2 and like the fact that like brody is leaning into the water like on the mask when he's pointing the gun is like next level tension and this movie tries something like it but i'm like Well, I mean, either this is going to happen or just he's going to die. And there's only like five minutes left. So I don't think it's that.
0: (laughs) Look, in the movie Leviathan, it's it's this other movie. It's called Leviathan. It's from 1989. Everyone loves it. Everyone's like, oh, Leviathan, it's great. And I was like, oh, it's got Peter Weller. Oh, it's so good. And in that movie... Peter Weller also says the line, say, ah, but he adds motherfucker because it's an R-rated movie. And when I watched that movie, I was like, oh, man, one of the only good parts of this movie is when he says, say, ah, motherfucker, and then, like, throws a grenade in its mouth and it explodes. Uh, And then I watched this movie again, and I'm like, wait a minute. So you're telling me there's nothing good about Leviathan? Leviathan sucks. Jaws 2 forever. Just wait, we'll eventually cover Leviathan on this film uh, podcast, I'm sure. Uh, but okay, so yeah, the original Jaws, uh, we talked about it a lot uh, last episode for people who are listening along, uh, is of course like a classic. And it's really hard to, I guess, imagine uh, doing another film, especially when sequels were not the norm, right? Like everyone in all the behind the scenes are always talking about how like, look, man, we had no idea what sequels were like like we really like sequels happened obviously but they didn't usually like have huge returning cast members and they weren't big budgeted and they were usually seen as lesser movies uh which they normally are like depending on the movies but they weren't really given as much money studio wise like it was kind of just like oh hey you can also get some money off of this like you're not going to make as much money but you're still going to make money But we're not going to make your budget that big. But like Jaws Two was like a full big blown out Hollywood production, Uh, which again um, I think what works in this movie's favor is the fact that they had so many really good second unit directors who just captured like everything. Because like if they had like the only thing that remains from the the John Hancock version that he filmed himself and got his like. director of photography and everyone to shoot is the scene where the very first uh, appearance in the harbor of the jaws like the of the shark and the fin comes up and you briefly see it in the harbor and i think it's really telling because you can really get a sense of fog in it it's night it looks a lot dreary and a lot more like it's, it's, it looks different, so you could tell that somebody did something different with it, but it's also just a good introduction to the shark, so like only really if you're thinking about it and looking at it cinematically would you go, oh, I now know this fact, so it's different, but in the movie it, it fits. Um, but I, I, the original movie as written sounded fascinating because it was just a way darker movie and it would have easily been an r rating that was one of the problems they had with uh, this movie like especially in production is they just kept adding kills and then having to subtract kills and then having to film a kill another way with blood and without blood just to like make sure that it was pg because again at the time this is before pg-13 and uh you know they didn't want to make it r because that would just massively cut into their profits and I don't know if there's ever been an R-rated sequel to a PG movie ever now that I think about it. There may be in some in some weird world, uh but yeah, it's a, it's 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 very odd that this movie is even rated PG because I know nowadays it would 100% be PG-13. Um especially given like how they're really uh like even when the the couple like Brody and Ellen are at the party at the opening they literally go like hey want to go home and have sex like they say fool around but like they're not like hiding the fact that they're like bumping bumping uglies right like it's not it's not subtle at all so uh it's a very weird PG movie like PG meant something different back in those days where I, not, it's not as much nowadays,
1: you know what I mean? You know what I mean? No, the YMCA movie, um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, yeah, there's just full-on, like, penis out, and it's rated PG. And you're like, oh, okay. Um, but, like, yeah, there was just kind of something different. I'm not going to say audiences were more mature, but I think at the very least, there was less expectation that, like, seeing something was going to like strongly traumatize a child like i would say the average maybe 13 year old saw it like terminator 2 um and you know sometimes parents would like cover your eyes or whatever but like i would say most people saw it and were fine and that's
0: right, you doing you're doing just attack attack on my own show you're just attacking me on my own show all right look that scene where he's drinking milk and then the knife comes and slices through his milk and then his head scarred me for life. And I was very scared of that movie, okay? Okay, that movie frightened me a lot. I'm a scary little baby.
1: I watched a lot of like scary movies when I was a kid and they also really got me. Like I remember seeing the first uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and just the idea of Freddy was the scariest thing in the world. The movie itself is still pretty good, but like, You know, the idea was so much bigger. And I think, like, Jaws, obviously, and uh, Jaws 2, I would infer for everybody that saw it, like, it was that concept that, like, people didn't want to get in pools. Like, not even, like, water where a shark could be. Like, they didn't want to get in, like, the bathtub.
0: Yeah, right. Well, it it was interesting uh, interesting that you mentioned that. There was uh, an early version of the script um pretty much played up on that idea because there's a nightmare sequence in the early script where brody just like starts seeing shark fins everywhere like he like goes out and he's like oh there's shark fins there there's shark fins there everywhere there's shark fins he looks at his pool in the backyard and there's like a shark fin in his pool and i'm just like oh that sounds like an amazing uh you know a really fun dream sequence that just so showcase just how paranoid he is and just how widespread the fear is he i mean i guess that would be a little interesting to talk about how really um brody is almost like reflecting how the audiences handled the original jaws because after jaws one came out there was like a we we will obviously we're going to discuss that and we have discussed that uh, at length as we go through this series but there is uh you know a tendency for people to uh abuse shark populations and a lot of people uh, murdered a lot of sharks because of the original jaws and just kind of immediately panicked and immediately like sounded the alarm and you know probably poison tips and bullets and shot it at some bluefish too like you know um his paranoia and his uh his level of just wanting to destroy whatever it is that could possibly danger them even if it is just an animal who's like living on its own right like um kind of reflects how society reacted to the original jaws
1: Definitely. Like, I could see that. Um, and I think it's interesting watching this movie now because we can clearly see that they're doing, like, a form of PTSD or um, probably shell shock then. I'm trying to remember if where they were, like, if it was battle fatigue. The thing is, they weren't, like, acknowledging that it could happen to non-soldiers. So, like, it was clear that that's what they were portraying was just this character that, like, you know, you expect, like, to wake up in cold sweats and he's having memories of this thing and he's specifically saying, like, he's got a fight or flight reaction. He seems to be like, you know, he's he's gone all out. He's set up a tower, we are to believe. Um, cause otherwise that tower was there and it's like pretty clear. Like, it's kind of funny that that's there. Cause there's a little girl that like hangs a lamp shade on it. And she's like, I've seen that before. They have those in Florida. And I'm like, yeah, cause they're in Florida. That's Florida. Um, <laughs> but like, <laughs> and it's like so clear. You're like, that's not New York at all. Um, there are no cigarette butts that doesn't look like a boardwalk, um, <laughs> Like this is definitely in like look at this white sand and you're like, oh, you ever been to Atlantic City? As like anyway, um, I've been <laughs> I've been doing some research um, just on like you know because there's the in the first one there's the classic like you know we can't shut down the beaches it's Fourth of July and like obviously right now they're shutting a lot of beaches down um, and in this movie there's an interesting legal issue because you know, Brody just starts kind of, like, shooting um, at the water, and then someone goes, like, we could be sued for this, and this, like, you know, and all this trauma and all that. And I'm like, no, you can't, qualified immunity. Uh, They're probably fine. Um, (laughs) Which is, like, another long, dark topic that we could engage in, but probably not the right forum.
0: Right, right. Now, this was just a public official. He may not have known the ins and outs of suing. Huh? Huh? Fuck you, Len Peterson. That's the that's the official position of this podcast. Um, we hate you, Len Peterson. I bet you there's somebody listening right now. I bet you the character's name is not Len Peterson. And there's somebody out there listening right now who is named Len Peterson. And they just like cried. Like they're just like, you know what? I'm going to listen to a podcast. I'm going to relax. It's going to be great. And they just, you know. Everything's ruined for
1: him. No, I think it's I think it's the actor that's listening to it right now. And he's like, I did a really good job in Jaws 2. I wonder how these kids liked it. And then <laughs> he's just listening and he's like, I'm probably dead. <laughs> Let's be honest. But if I wasn't dead, I'd be really upset about this. I really did want to quickly say about um, the film. I think like... Yes, I, I haven't read anything about what the original script was, but what I want to say is this script works because we've already seen the killer shark. Like, that's what made the first one so great, everybody says, is that you don't really see it, and then, like, when you eventually get it, you're like, whoa, like, this is so terrifying. And in this one, they show the shark a lot, um, but we still get that great narrative throughout where it's, like, everybody knows there's a... Sh- like. Yeah, well, like, only Brody knows there's a shark. But, like, there's so many little bits that are like, no, it's not a shark, it's not a shark, it's not a shark. And we're full on, like, there's a shark. Can you stop hang gliding or <laughs> doing that thing from Jurassic Park 3? I don't... Parasailing?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, they they invented parasailing for Jurassic Park 3, and then a time machine was invented, and then they put it in this movie, and it was... Uh... An unintentional uh, historical artifact.
1: I did think that Phillips. Uh, I almost said Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, what I meant was, um, <laughs> who's the other actor that's in Boogie Nights and I've suddenly forgot the name of, and he's, um, he's married to Felicity Huffman. And his name is, he's in Fargo. I'm just going to keep naming movies he's in. He's in The Cooler. William, William H. Macy. H. Macy, we got there. <laughs>
0: so you just thought of
1: William H. Macy? That's all, that,
0: that, wait, that was the whole story? You just thought of William H. Macy when you were watching this He's in Jurassic Park 3. Oh, Why <laughs> that? Oh, I'm sorry. If you would have gotten started there, I, I would have understood that's where you were starting. We would have had a lot shorter conversation because, you know, I respect the Kirby's from Jurassic Park 3. They're a wonderful uh, duo of characters um funny thing uh the we uh, even though we made fun of the water skiing uh scene and the parasailing and all of that uh the water skier in this movie was like an olympics water skier and
1: it was just like you know she she did this professionally so it's pretty obvious because that like it looks like a lot of work like she is like straight up sailing across the like the wake um which is really impressive and. I think, like, they did a really good job, like, whenever I think of shark movies, I think of the fact that, like, sharks go for movement, and they look for things that look like seals, and I think that they did a good job with, like, some of the, like, underwater, like, types of new things that we can see, so, you know, like, the boats look different, because they're the sailboats, like, the, like, the dragging, um, uh, like, water ski, like, the one ski she's on, the waterboard I don't know what it's called anyway like interesting like visuals with that type of thing <laughs> underwater
0: um I think uh, I think we're kind of uh, rounding out the end of an uh, end, uh, end of the discussion uh, do you have any uh, final thoughts about jaws 2 and uh, you know are, are, where would you
1: place us in the jaws franchise if you've seen all the movies I was about to say I can't wait for jaws three uh, d um, <laughs> no I think It would probably obviously go, like, Jaws, and then maybe it depends on your taste. If we're talking about a better movie, it's Jaws 2. If you're talking about, like, entertainment, it's Jaws 4, The Revenge, Um, because it's insane. Um, So, yeah, I mean, this is probably a a much—well, it is a much more competent film, so I'd say it's probably Jaws 1, Jaws 2, Jaws 4, and then— jaws 3 i think exists oh uh, i
0: can't wait i'm really excited i love jaws 3 so we'll talk about that next week obviously uh, <laughs> um uh, yeah so those are good final thoughts like i think uh I, I i was really surprised with how competent of a sequel jaws 2 was and how much i enjoyed it this time around for years jaws 2 had kind of been the i guess the weird outlier for me in the franchise in that It wasn't obviously was not as good. I didn't think it was as good as the original Jaws and it wasn't as crazy or as wacky as Jaws 3 or 4. Uh, And then rewatching it now, I really kind of got to see what people liked about it so much and I really got into it. Um, you know, I think the Brody, uh, Roy Scheider, even though he hated the production, does an amazing performance when you consider that. Um, and I, I really enjoyed the, the kid cast. I, I find that when I, I guess maybe I've watched so many horror movies that I, I come to evaluate uh, teenage casts a little differently than I should uh in that i oftentimes just look at it like slice of life stuff like i literally just be like oh this is like cinema verite and we're just seeing it happen like i don't think of it as like oh these are character arcs and they're having this and this like it's just like oh this just seems like natural teens in a, in a in a natural environment making dumb jokes and you know having a good time um now obviously you you spouted out that you know like some of the guys make jokes that they would not make if uh if they were you know in a actual uh, teenage environment. But I think for the most part, I really just kind of viewed it as like, oh, look at these teens. I love the look of the shark. I don't know why they didn't continually disfigure the shark in other movies after this. I have no idea why they stopped doing that because it's such a striking image and it really just makes this like the Freddy Krueger of Jason Voorhees of sharks and they should have just, I don't know, revived the shark. Like, you know, if, fucking Jason can get revived, why not the shark? The shark didn't even explode or anything this time. He just got shocked and then, you know, dropped, apparently. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> you know, as you do. And then, uh, and then that happened. Um, but, yeah, I, I like Jaws 2 a lot more than, than I thought. And I will be interested to see how, at the end of this month, how I feel about it in comparison to the other movies um, because this might be my new favorite Jaws sequel. Obviously, not my new favorite Jaws movie because the original exists. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but with that, Adam, uh, where can people find more of your work on the interwebs?
1: Oh, um, well, you can check out my podcast. Is Space Lawyers podcast? It comes out really sporadically, but um, I have a couple episodes recorded that I'm going to release. Uh, one with Cece from Bloody Good Horror. She's amazing, and we talk about prometheus and alien covenant and genocide which is less fun than today's topic and um yeah i write articles still for bloody good horror so if you wanted to read them they're these legal articles um and they're weird we just get into legal topics and uh, they're always fun and give me an excuse to watch a lot of horror movies so yeah Perfect, perfect. And as always, if you
0: want to uh, email this podcast, you can always email us at milkshakesandmimosas at gmail.com. If you're interested in supporting us on Patreon, you can do that at milkshakesandmimosas on Patreon. Uh, If you're interested in any of the sources used to kind of give you that huge bevy of information up at the top, uh, you can find that on our website and in the show notes for this podcast. Uh, Thank you, and have yourself a wonderful day. Goodbye.